Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Waiteka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me once again on the Born to Talk radio show podcast. I love doing this every week, and I'm so happy to have you join me. And my guest today, David Hirschberg. David is a literary author. He's written literary novels, and we're going to be talking about that today. And I want to welcome you to the show, David. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. Oh, boy. Well, you know, the beauty of the podcast, right, David? You and I have not met. Um, Thanks to your wonderful publicist, I've I've heard about you, so a shout-out to her, to Rachel, and for introducing us, and I'm I'm just, I'm delighted that you're going to be joining us, and we're going to be talking about you and what you love, and I thought you could just tell us a little bit about yourself so we can get to know you. Sure. So I live and grew up in Westchester County, New York, which is north of New York City. I'm married. I have three sons and four grandsons, so there are no double X chromosomes in my genes, that's for sure. (laughs) I I spent my my business career in the life sciences industry. I'm still chairman of one firm and advisor to another, but I'm a few years removed from being a CEO. Both the chairman and the advisory role are part-time positions, and the advisory role represents a way to pay it forward. I like to... Think of myself as an eminent grease, uh, literally as well, because my beard is full, white, and gray. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to give the first-time CEO the benefit of mistakes that I and others have made, such that she won't fall into traps that could delay or prevent promising drugs from reaching the market. The bottom line in all of this is that I have time to devote to writing that doesn't impinge upon my business activities. Oh, it's just great. And, you know, it's really funny because you and I had a, a brief conversation prior to doing this show, and you live in Westchester, and I live in Westchester. But if you took a ruler, we'd have to draw the line straight across the map because I'm in Westchester, which is a community within Los Angeles, and you're on the other side of the of the country. So it's a hot and sweaty day by you today, right? I, I saw the news. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah, it's kind of overcast here at my house. So let's talk about your literary novels because you've written two of them, and I would be really interested in really kind of delving in to the book called Jacobo's Rainbow. I know you've written My Mother's Son as well. That was your first book. But we're going we're gonna to start with Jacobo's Rainbow and and talk about that. So with that in mind, David, what was your goal in writing this novel. So I, I like to write about major issues that affect Americans today. War, politics, immigration, discrimination, even epidemics and, and big business. Jacobo's Rainbow, it's an historical literary novel. 
set primarily in the 1960s during the convulsive period of the student protest movements in the Vietnam War. I, I wanted to write about the outsiders in the U.S. There are many books about struggles that recent immigrants face, but adding one more from a perspective of a member of a traditional group who took a well-traveled route to get here and acclimate didn't allow for a different point of view, which is what I wanted to do. I, I was also interested in finding a locale that could serve as a metaphor for what's going on in universities today with the shutting down of free speech, cancel culture, anti-Semitism, and intersectionality. So for that, I was naturally drawn to the Berkeley free speech movement of 1964. I thought that if I could create a, a fictitious university that was undergoing the kind of tumult that went on at UC Berkeley, it could be the perfect setting into which I could drop a, a true outsider, ironically one who was born in the U.S., but whose family lived in total isolation from the outside world until the 1930s, and whose integration into the community at large subsequent to that was quite modest. In, in addition, setting the novel in New Mexico as opposed to the greater San Francisco area allowed me to involve Native Americans, who to this day are, for the most part, still outsiders. So all of this gave me the freedom to create characters and scenes that were not duplicates of what actually went on at Berkeley, yet enabled me to write about free speech, campus activism, war protests, discrimination, student leaders, and the town versus gown phenomenon that exists around many universities. Interesting. That is really, that, that, that I find that really, really fascinating. And, you know, I'm going to interrupt at certain times to ask for definitions and explanations because I think that that's just part of curiosity. Would you define what outsiders means to you? So outsiders are people who are marginalized in some respect. That originally we probably thought of outsiders as anybody who wasn't a wasp, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. But I think a lot of people who fell into the outsider category of, uh, in previous years, and for example, think of Irish Catholics. Uh, they were clearly outsiders throughout most of the 19th and the first part of the 20th century. But with the uh, election of John F. Kennedy as president, and now we have a second Catholic president, I don't think that uh, people of Irish Catholic ancestry are really outsiders anymore. That doesn't mean an individual won't occasionally be subject to some sort of discrimination. But as a group, I think they're firmly entrenched in, the, in American culture. So it's anybody who is uh, an object of discrimination, and outsiders can be not just uh, uh, nationalities, they can be religious groups as well, or belief groups as well, and even now uh, in terms of gender groups. So there, it's anyone who differs from what we in the 1950s called the norm. I think that's probably a, a way to talk about it. Interesting. Okay, thank you. Thank you for... Um defining that for me. So let me ask you, why did you set the story in the past? So that's a great question, because if I set the novel in the present time, the here and now, there wouldn't be any distance from what we've got today. You know the talking heads climate that instantly categorizes and analyzes events from a narrow partisan perspective. If you want to write about immigration, discrimination, or free speech issues that are, that are current, you'll be pilloried by one side of the political divide or the other. 
So placing the action in earlier times avoids that kind of a labeling. I'm, I'm glad to say that book reviewers and interviewers clearly get it and appreciate that I use a mirror to reflect what's happening now instead of a sledgehammer to get my points across. Audiences, both virtual and in person, can enjoy a presentation without pigeonholing me, and thereby they can internalize the issues I'm trying to raise without feeling threatened. I like the way you said that. You know, it doesn't surprise me as a writer that you're so descriptive in the way you speak. And I'm taking notes, David, just so you know. And what I just heard you say is that a mirror reflects what happens now rather than a sledgehammer. And that's I think correct. That's that's pretty that that's that's a I like having a visual. And I would say this to those of you that are listening and I will repeat this again at the end of the show, but if you want to visit David's website, I think it's really important that you know how he spells his name so that you can find his website. So his website is uh, David um you know what I have you up on him my on my um Facebook, and that isn't really where I want to have you, David. Really, you are at www.davidhirschberg, and may I spell that? It's H-I-R-C-H-B. No, no C. No C. That's the problem that when people look me up, it's H-I-R-C-H-B. Oh, you know what I said, C? Oh, gosh, and you know, David, I know that. I know that, and that was just... My anxiety speaking when it shouldn't have been speaking. Your, let me please be very clear, everybody. Let me spell this again. David is the way you would spell it. His last name is H-I-R-S-H-B-E-R-G dot com. Thank you for correcting me because, trust me, you know, I'm going to just step aside and understand this with you and how I can relate to what you're saying. My maiden name, David, was Berger, and it was not spelled in the traditional B-E-R-G-E-R. It was spelled B-E-R-G-H-E-R, and without the H, you would not find me. So I apologize profusely for not saying that correctly and letting you all know that this is the place you will find David, and you will find his website and all that he has to offer. So thank you for letting me do this. So let me so let, let's let go me back add, to let, let, be, yes, sir. Before, before you ask another question, because it, it's funny that you that you mentioned that about your name. Um, I got an email from somebody whose name is David Hirschberg, and he said that the first time he tried to get in touch with me, he spelled it with a, a C, and of course it got him to somebody else, and he eventually mm-hmm. realized his mistake, and he he spelled it correctly. His name is also spelled correctly. And he called me because he said, you know, I've been getting all sorts of accolades and plaudits <laughs> from the novels I've been writing. Oh, and man. he said, I don't write anything, so I have to reach out to you. And he said to me, is it possible we're related? So I <gasps> said, I, have, I, have, I happen to have a Hirschberg family tree that goes back to about 1840 So I, in the United States. So I took it out. And uh, I said, who was the person who you knew, the oldest Hirschberg that you knew? And he said, Bill Hirschberg. And I said, 
my grandfather was Bill Hirschberg. Oh, my God. Said, what was your grandmother's name? And he said, Rose Hirschberg. And I said, well, my Bill Hirschberg was married to Rose, but I knew everybody in my family. So I went into this table that I had, this chart, mm -hmm. and it turns out there are two Bill Hirschbergs, and they are first cousins. So David and I are third cousins because we share a common great-grandfather. And I'm meeting him for the first time in two weeks. So he spelled my name incorrectly, but he was dogged enough to then spell it correctly, and I found out I've got a cousin I'm going to meet. You know, it's so that my heart is just beating with happiness right now. I talk about my three C's, conversations plus connections equals community. You just defined that, and I, I am so excited for you to have this happen. Does he live near you? Does he live in, in the state of New York? No, he actually lives about a half an hour from where my oldest son lives in Vermont. So when we visit, my wife and I visit my oldest son and his whole family uh, in less than two weeks, we're going to meet Cousin Dave oh, at the same time. That's just, that's the best. I love that. All right. Well, that, I mean, I know we're going to talk about your books, but you know what? I, I am so delighted, frankly that you understand that this is a conversation. I never think of my show as an interview. Next, next, we are having a conversation. We're going to talk about what you do, but I am, I am delighted that you could share that personal story about yourself, all because, as the secret would say, the law of attraction, I happen to say it wrong, knowing full well there's no C in your name. That's just hysterical. All right, back to our questions. So let me ask you, what do you see as the advantages or the disadvantages of setting the novel in the 1960s? I know where I was. What do you so think? That's a really that's a really good question. Since since it's a novel with a new setting, I avoid uh, some people who were there as anti-war protesters and free speech advocates from 55 years ago at UC Berkeley saying. Uh, that's not what happened exactly because I was there. Um, and I wanted to avoid that completely. And another advantage is that it's been 55 years, and it's a relatively long time ago. And many of today's readers were, were either not born then or were too young to remember what was going on at the time. But you also asked about disadvantages. And there is a disadvantage um, and one possible disadvantage is that many people today can't come to grips with activities or events that went on before their time. So they, they tend to think to disbelieve anything that takes away from current events being first and prominent. I've got to say that this phenomenon isn't just relevant to my books. It's just as true for other books set in earlier times as well. What I don't know, is this a phenomenon of the younger generation or two today? Does this always happen? I just don't have a feel for that, but I know it is a potential disadvantage. 
That's interesting. Just out of curiosity, this is a personal question. I hope you don't mind me asking. How old are? How old is your? You have the one son, did you say? No, I have three sons. You have to, I'm, that's right, my three sons. I remember that. I remember thinking, like the show, my three sons. What are the ages of your of your of your sons? Forty-nine, forty-five, and forty-two. Okay, so very much in the age of my two children. Son, 47, daughter, 44. And my son went to school, went to, started, did his undergrad at San Jose State, which is, you know, not that far from Berkeley. And certainly people that lived here on the West Coast if wanted to go to Berkeley. Um, that was definitely a, a destination college for many people here. So, But, I mean, I'm old enough and you're old enough to know what was going on. I just happened to have it be, you know, north of me. Um, so I just just to, just to make a comment on that. Sure. I I went to I went to Dartmouth, which is in New Hampshire. Oh yeah. And we right. were all aware of what was going on in the free speech movement at Berkeley, but it wasn't the way it is today, where you've got the internet and email and text yes. messaging, where there's instant communication. So we would we would listen to things on 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 the radio newscasts. We would see things on the evening news, and remember those days, the evening news was about 15 minutes. That's right. about all it was. And then we'd wake up in the morning and we'd read things in the paper. But it, it, wasn't, it wasn't that we felt it emotionally as much as we would today when there mm-hmm. are protests going on, or whether they be or, uh, anything that's going on on a college campus or against the government or for the government, mm-hmm. for that matter. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a totally different time. Right. So that while while we were aware of these things, I would say it was only tangentially or mm-hmm. n- certainly not in what we would characterize today as a deep dive. And it's only right. now that we can start to see things that are going on every day and do instant analysis uh, of them, which is really very different from what went on when, when I was in school. Absolutely. Um, in all aspects of our lives, um, you know, who knew what Zoom was a year and a half ago? Um, let's talk about um, the fact that you are a believer in the importance of opening paragraphs. And I'd like to know, I, I think I would know, but I'd like to hear from you, why is that so important, That opening, those opening paragraphs? So it's actually the most critical part of the writing process for me. Uh, until I settle on the opening line, I can't begin to write the book. It sets the tone for all the messages that I want to deliver. You remember the famous line from Lao Tzu, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. Right. For me, write, writing a book is indeed a thousand-mile trip, so you have to get mm-hmm. off on, on the right foot. I had thought about a lot of the issues in the first book, My Mother's Tongue, which came out three years ago. But Mm -hmm. I could not sit down and write it until I got that opening line. And the opening line is very short and succinct. When you're a kid, they don't always tell you the truth. I want to say that again. When you're a kid, they don't always tell you the truth. And when I wrote that, I knew I could start writing the book because it's sets a tone of mystery. You know right away adults are not going to be telling kids true stories about things. 
And so you're going to wonder, when you read the book, you start reading it, is this true? Is this not true? Is it an exaggeration? Is it hyperbolic? Mm -hmm. What's going on here? Are there curtains around it? I better pay attention, which is really what I want people to do. And in that book, there's a tremendous number of feints, F-E-I-N-T-S, not people F-A-I-N-T-S, not people fainting, Mm -hmm. where uh, misdirection, where it's purposeful, because I want people to start to think about, well, that could have happened, and that might have happened. And if it wasn't, when they find out it wasn't, why wasn't that? And why did somebody say that that was the right thing at that time? So these are all very important things for me. And in my second book, in Jacobo's Rainbow, the one that just came out a month ago, uh, I'll give you the opening line, which is a short line, but then the rest of the paragraph is actually pretty important. So okay. the first sentence is, it seems as if anniversaries have a way of letting spirits loose, and they don't respect boundaries any more than viruses do. So the only way to fool yourself into thinking you can control them is to make others believe that they can see them as well. Then I go on. A conjurer uses sleights of hand, feints, and misdirections, which can succeed because you're willing to suspend visual disbelief. However, an author only has one dimension to work with, as well as a disconnected audience, which can be a disadvantage. But on the other hand, there's no one to say that what you're reading is false. Today marks the 15th anniversary of a momentous event in my life, the day I was sent to jail. It's the obvious time for me to tell my story. My guess is that you're going to believe this is fiction. That would be a delusion. Whoa. What what I'm doing, I'm telling the reader right away that it's a novel, but I'm also saying that it's a delusion if one thinks it's fiction. Now, that may appear to be oxymoronic, but I'm trying to separate the actual fictional, fictional events from what could have happened in real life. And it, I, the third book, which I, I've just finished, mm-hmm. uh, starts out completely differently. And my third book is the only book I have that uses four-letter words. Okay. Uh, and there's a reason for it. The third book, which I don't want to talk too much about, but it's called The Bronx Cheer. And you can't write a story about the Bronx in the 1940s and 1950s and not use what I call street language. You, you've, got okay. to, you've got to do that. So I do that in the third book, which is very different from me, and it rifles its way all, all throughout the book, which, mm-hmm. which made it a, a, a very different uh, book for me and different kinds of characters. And, and uh, it, it, frankly, it was the kind of thing I needed to do to show, to show some growth in the character development, etc. Sure. But these opening lines are really, really important. To me, and I know there are people who can outline books, and they don't have to start with a first sentence or first paragraph, and they follow the outline. Um, that's not what I do. I absolutely mm-hmm. need this as a foundation for uh, uh, to, to start start the process of writing the book. Without it, I just can't. I just can't get going. And I sure. would have to say also that one last point on this. Once 
I've, I've never had to rewrite the opening line. It's not as if I wrote it and then I said, started to write the book and said, well, I have to go back and rewrite that. Um, no, I don't, I don't do that. Once I have settled on the, uh, on the opening line that I like, that's it for me. That's so interesting. You know, David, I've had a lot of authors, and everyone's writing process, as I am learning, just by what you've just said, is so different. Now, granted, the gentleman that I had last week write anthologies. So that's a different style of, of a book to read. Um, I've had other people that have told me sometimes they write the middle and the end and then they get back to, so this is where it all started. So it's very, very interesting how every writer has their own process. And it sounds to me like before you can start to write and actually filling it out there, and I, do you do this all on a computer or do you actually handwrite this? No, I, 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 I do it on, uh, in Word. I, I find oh, it word. so much easier yes. to do it in correct, and, and it, it's right. crazy to do it. For me, yes. anyway, it would be crazy to do it along. I would agree with you. So before you put that opening line, or perhaps like you might, might have mentioned, paragraph together, what's the process that gets you there? Because do you know the end? Do you know the end? And so, therefore, you know how you want it to start. What's your process? I have no idea, to be very <laughs> candid with that. you, where the ending is going to go. And I'll tell you why. The characters start to take on a life of their own as if they're real. And so uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, I, in Jacobo's Rainbow, I have a character named Ben Venice, and he's a cafe owner. And when I started to write, and, and uh, Jacobo and his pals would go into this cafe every once in a while, Ben Veniste was an incredibly minor character who was simply the guy who owned the place where the kids would sit around and talk about the issues of the day. Mm-hmm. And then I had an idea to maybe improve Ben Veniste and give him a little heft. And I wrote a little more and gave him a little bit of a backstory, and then it suddenly hit me, Ben Veniste is going to be a major character in the book. And uh, it was totally astounding to me that I did it this way. And I, I actually eliminated an entire character as well um, because I didn't think that character was bringing as much to the table as somebody like a Ben Veniste was. So I don't really know. I know in concept where I'd like to go in terms of uh, 30,000 feet, but nothing, nothing more. I, so I really don't have a process that could serve as a blueprint for anyone else. And, and the other thing is I don't write at a specific time. I don't know. I, was allow, I, I, I just allow myself to block out distractions for a certain period of time. Basically, I write when I feel like it. Sometimes it's a, a few minutes, other times a couple of hours. I, what I can say is that I spend a disproportionate amount of my time editing and re-editing my books and my short stories. I Just as a sidebar, if they go on the website, I've, I've written four short stories. One of them actually won a very nice award recently. 
Uh, I do like writing short stories. I prefer uh-huh. to write novels, but um, every once in a while I do write a short story. The other thing is uh, I send uh, my manuscripts to an editor. I have a terrific editor with the proviso that he should not treat me with kid gloves. Mm-hmm. I, I want this guy to be brutally honest because that's the only way I can get constructive feedback so that I can improve what I've written. I've got a very thick skin when it comes to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to make sure that uh, I don't have somebody saying, yeah, that's, that's really good, that's really fine, and then to himself telling his friends, or his associates, you know, that, that particular paragraph or that chapter or that, that character isn't working out well. No, I, I want this person to shake me up, slap me on both sides of the face, and say, uh, you know, here's, here's what I want you to do instead. I should also say that, that my wife, who's, who's not an actual editor, is kind of the best editor I could have, and I'll tell you why. I'll, I, I write on the third floor of my house in an office. I come down to the first floor, and I'll, I'll put a few pages of a chapter in front of her, and I'll say, why don't you, why don't you read this and, and get back to me? And she'll read it, and she'll call me back into the room, and I'll say, well, tell me about it. And if she doesn't like it, she looks at me, and she says one word. She goes, no. And it's <laughs> terrific because oh, she's, I love it. she's not – She's not an editor who could say, all right, we've got problems. Here are the 11 things I want you to do. She just says it's not working. So hightail it back up to the third floor and rewrite this. I don't know what you should do or how you should do it, but this doesn't work. And every time she's done that, uh, it's, she's been absolutely right. I should also say... I should also say that this is the approach I took uh, in business as well. I was hmm. lucky enough to be CEO of five biotech companies and chairman of seven. I'm still chairman of one right now. I never wanted to be surrounded by toadies. I don't want people to say, you know, this is the thing that you, you know, what you've done is terrific and this is wonderful. I didn't care the lowest person in the totem pole could walk into my office and say, you know, this policy, this procedure, this activity, this event shouldn't be happening this way. Here's a better way to do it. Um, and so I'm consistent in my writing and in my business activities. That, I'm, I'm curious, based on what you've just said, from when you started, you got your idea, you wrote your opening sentence and paragraph. Before you sent, did you did you send it to the editor when you were through writing it, or did you send the, did you send um, um, parts of it as you wrote? Good question. I I wait till I finish a manuscript because a good editor wants to see where you're going and what mm-hmm. the author thinks is the denouement. And that way, in this case, I use he because I have a male editor. Uh huh. That way, he can go back and say, okay. Now that I've read the whole thing, I think chapter three is a little weak. In one case, uh, his name is DJ. He said, you got to switch the order of some paragraphs. Obviously, you mm-hmm. have to do a little bit of, of, of uh, editing around that. Sure. But, but, but do that because it's, 
you haven't put really things in the right order. It works, but it would work much better the other way. So I think that, that having a, a good editor who sees the entire manuscript is good. And I, I did send him the, uh, the manuscript uh, after the first draft, mm-hmm. and he came back with some excellent suggestions, some at the 30,000-foot level, some were micro, mm-hmm. uh, micromanagement. You know, mm-hmm. this, this sentence needs a semicolon, not a comma. I mean, just oh, got getting it. down Grammatical. to that level of, of detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he both, he has the capability to, and he can't help himself, to be both a copy <laughs> editor and a literary editor. And I actually like that. So when I get things back from him, it's, it's not the no that my wife gives me. He says, look, this is what you've got to do. And sometimes I disagree with him, and then mm-hmm. we, we'll talk about it. Sometimes it's a question of he didn't understand what I was really trying to say. So right. when you speak to somebody and you say, oh, he says, that's what you were getting at. So ignore my comments because I thought you meant something else. Okay, now here's a way to do it, and we would talk it out, and we would and we would do that. That makes sense to me because, frankly, if he didn't understand your motivation or your intention, and said, "I didn't get why you said that," that's that's a starting part. It's like, well, you know, if if that's what you thought, I don't know what other readers think the same thing. This is good that we talk about that. So that sounds like a very good working partnership, frankly. Uh, I wanted to ask you something. Uh, before you, uh, Marcia, yes, before sir. you ask another question, could, could, I, could I interrupt Please. a little bit? Please, absolutely. Um, so I just wanted to give you a, an example and read something uh, for you and the audience Please. on this. Af- after that opening paragraph on in Jacopo's Rainbow, I had a second paragraph, which was okay. And he actually thought it was well written, but he said, put it later in the book. He said, you need something more dramatic after that first paragraph. It's got to have people buzzing, like, what does he mean? Is it a novel? What's going on here? So I would just like to, to read the paragraph yes. that he said uh, basically exploded when he saw it. And he said, yes. He said, that's, that's the setup. So here, here it is. It's until 1960, all of us in Arroyo Grande were ignorant of electricity and automobiles, were unaware of plastic, steel, or homogenization, hadn't been exposed to vaccines, x-rays, or Freud, weren't acquainted with Shakespeare or Hemingway, had never listened to Gershwin or Mozart, couldn't have imagined Les Demoiselles d'Avignon or The Starry Night, didn't know what JFK, DNA, SOS, IBM, CIA or RBI stood for, were uninformed of the existence of George or Booker T. Washington and assumed that England, France, Spain, and Portugal were still the most powerful nations on earth. We used sassafras roots as toothpaste, made paper from pulp and colored it with plant dyes, played the lute and the lyre, and used percussion instruments made from animal skins. And we never went to sleep without our parents saying, that all shall sit under their vines and under their fig trees, and none shall make them afraid. Whoa. And when he read that, he said, oh, now, now you've set the book up 
the opening of the misdirections in the feints was like a left jab that a that a, a, a that a boxer uses to to mm-hmm. set up and this is this is the roundhouse right punch that knocks them out and and he, he had urged me to he didn't tell me what to write he just mm-hmm. said you need something more dramatic at the beginning which really sets people's mind like who are these people what's mm-hmm. going on they live in New Mexico, and, and, but none of it. Well, wow, what? And he yeah. said, that, that does it. It did it for him, and it did it for me. And thankfully, when my wife read that, she instead of saying no, she said yes. You know, I actually, as you were reading this to me, I actually closed my eyes and listened to your every word. I, did, I put my pen down. I'm not taking notes about what you said because it would have distracted me from what you said. And you know what initially, immediately came to my mind? I, this could be a movie. This could be a screenplay. This could be something that those of us that are maybe not readers, hand in the air, but watch things. Wouldn't this make for an interesting drama, what you've just described? I don't know. I can't imagine that if I thought that, that somebody smarter than me didn't think of that. But I would just say that you drew a beautiful picture in my head, and I want to thank you for really taking the time. Very often my authors do not do what you've just done, which is to actually share a component of your writing. And it's it's pretty remarkable, and I want to thank you for um, taking the time to do that, truly. I'm going to skip around on some of these questions right now that I have for you because I can, and I want to ask you this question. You don't seem to do the typical kind of research that other authors do, and I'm wondering why that is. So uh, let me start by saying that uh, neither the scenes that take place at at the University of Taos, which is a school that doesn't exist in New Uh Mexico, nor the actions of the characters in them are intended to portray actual events or people associated with the the free speech movement at UC Berkeley. And there's a section of the book, since it does take place in the 1960s, uh, uh, some, some action in Vietnam, it's made out of whole cloth. And for the avoidance of doubt, which is a term the lawyers like to use, I've had no interaction, verbal, electronic, or written, with any person who was at Berkeley or who was in Vietnam during the 1960s. And I have to tell you something very interesting happened as a result of that. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who uh, read uh, the book when it first came out, She's a close friend. And she sent the, the, the book to someone she knew who had served in Vietnam. And she said, I want you to read the whole book, but it's okay if you start with the, just with the chapter X, which is the chapter in Vietnam, because he was there and he was a physician treating the soldiers in the field. He wasn't back in a hospital in Saigon. And in the book, Jacobo is a medic. So he, he writes me an email, 
and he says, uh, hi, I'm so-and-so, and so-and-so gave me the book, and thanks, I read it, I enjoyed it, and I want to talk a little about your experiences in Vietnam. And he said, I was in this uh, 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 division, this regiment, this armory, uh, this, this, um, this platoon, and I was stationed here, here, and here, and he said, since, since you were there in 65 and 66, I was there in 65 and 66, and, and you were a medic and, and I was a physician. He said, God knows, we, we may have crossed paths out in the field or in, a, in one of the helicopters in the field back uh, or in, in one of the field hospitals on the way back mm-hmm. to the bases. And I wrote him a note and I said, I've never been to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And he picked up the phone and he called me and he said, like, hearty har har, and he said, come on. And I said, no, I've never been to Vietnam. I've never never talked to anybody uh, who was in Vietnam. I never read letters back from the soldiers. I haven't read, uh, you know, war summaries. And he said, well, he said, but you described my experience there. And I said, well, he said, how did you do that? And my, uh, he said, it's inconceivable to me. And I said to him, you're a surgeon. He said, yeah. I said, you open up people's chests and you'll, you'll repair hearts or take out lungs or do whatever you do. That's inconceivable to me. I don't know how you do that. Mm-hmm. And he said, touche. And I said, mm-hmm. each of us picks something that we do and we do it. And you, 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 there's no explanation <laughs> for how we do it or why we do it. And uh, so I was very pleased, by the way, that, that he yes. thought I got it correctly. He said, you didn't exaggerate. You didn't underplay it. He said, I, I thought you were living my life. Uh, and I said, well, thank you. How flattering is that? And I know that that isn't what you were searching for, but it certainly was confirming that that here's a person that lived what you're writing about, that you hadn't personally experienced in your metaphor about, you know, you haven't opened up a chest before either. You're not a surgeon. So uh, it's, it's fascinating. You are a fascinating man. I wanted to ask I, you. I, do, oh, gosh, I, do, I just, if I could add one more thing to that. Sure, if, please. If you have the time. I, I do want to be specific, though, to answer your question, because I do some kind of research, and the research is what I call basic fact. So when Jacobo gets drafted, and he's sent to Vietnam, I made sure the means of how a typical soldier got there are accurate. So I, I had, you know, what base did they fly on, and did they stop at Guam, and did they, did they land mm-hmm. at Da Nang or Cameron Bay or wherever it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same goes for the kind of equipment he used in the field. I wanted to make sure those tiny things were accurate. But, but I didn't do the, any kind of research, you know, like speaking to vets and their stories. Um, and I want to tell you and, and the listeners why I don't do that. I've always been concerned that if I did, if I did the kind of detailed research that many authors do, and I'm not against that, just not my right. style, right. I'd either unintentionally borrow something from one of them or tilt what I was writing to fit into someone else's narrative, even subconsciously. So by avoiding this stuff completely, uh, I, I don't run into that trap. 
And this is not just for Jacobo's rainbow. I use the same paradigm for my mother's son and the same technique for a Bronx cheer um, that's going to come out in about 18 months. And when DJ, my editor, uh, was reading uh, a Bronx cheer, which he also edited and did a beautiful job on, uh, he said something to me about, oh, did you grow up in the Bronx? Did you live for a time in the Bronx? And with a, with a straight face, I said to him, well, I've been to Yankee Stadium, <laughs> and I've been to the Botanical oh. Garden, and oh, I went to the Bronx Zoo a couple of times. Mm. And he said, well, but, but how did you do that? He said, I felt like you dropped me into the, into the Bronx. And I said, DJ, he, he does something else for a living. I don't know how what you do for a living. And, you know, again, it was this kind of thing. Okay, I get it. But that's what a writer, if a writer is focused on, mm-hmm. on getting things correctly, he or she can insert themselves into an era or a locale and make you believe that, that you're there with them. That's mm-hmm. the goal of a good writer. And I always try to live up to that goal. Well, I, you know, I would say that, um, as I mentioned, I actually did close my eyes while you were speaking. And so you are, I don't know if your intention down the road will to, to also have an audio book. I can see where a lot of people would like that, particularly with people enjoying podcasts as much as they do right now and how popular those are. You know, I could see where people would love an audio book. I could see where book clubs would say, "Oh man, I wish this guy could come to our book club." I mean, I just, I just think it's, it's terrific. And I, I wanted to ask you this. Um, well, since, can I just say that this please. is an audio book. It's available on Amazon and any other place where you get audio books. Excellent. Uh, I didn't, I didn't do the audio because the, the group that, that does these has really, really good narrators. And, Wonderful. Uh, I, I enjoy speaking you know, to a podcast or for a live audience, but these people are really, are really talented. Thank you, thank you, David. Thank you for telling me that, and I will certainly include that. Um, I, it's probably on your website. And if, it, would I find that on your website, or do I have to just yes. go to Amazon? Okay. I no, would prefer – they're, they're also on the website. I would I would prefer to always direct people from my guest website because what I've learned is that oftentimes um, you have to pay something extra if people order their books from Amazon unless through your site you are directing people to Amazon. But um, I, I will. I direct. I, can, I direct people right. on the site to any place they want. They want to go I see to it. independent yep. bookstores to Amazon. I see it now. To, uh, to, to to Barnes and Noble, yep. To uh, to Apple, wherever they want to go. Perfect, perfect. And you know something? I'm on that site right now, and I can see that that's the case where people can buy it from Amazon, and you also have an audio books link as well. So I'm really glad you told me that, and I will make sure that um, I include that in our follow up. In the in the remaining time that we have together. I'm just, I'd like to ask you this. It seems like, um, from what I understand, family family relationships are very important in your novels, and I was just wondering, can you tell us a little bit about what inspired 
these relationships? Yes, um, they're very critical in all three of my books. In, in the first one, My Mother's Son, it's the relationship between two brothers, both as boys and middle-aged men. It's an extraordinarily close relationship. In Jacobo's Rainbow, it's the, close, the closeness of the protagonist who has two sisters, but it's the relationship especially with his oldest sister. And in the third book, which is a Bronx tale, it's a retelling of the Jacob and Esau story from Genesis. And if those in the audience remember a little bit about Jacob and Esau, they were twins, but they were uh, essentially at odds or even enemies for most of their lives. And at one point in time, they came together when they were adults with trepidation on both sides, and then they, then they split. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the Bible is unclear as to, uh, you know, if they ever had a relationship uh, after that. So it's a case of, of this is the only case in the three books where the relationship is not positive although there's some interesting dynamics that go with that, and there's attempts at reconciliation. We're in the Bible, there's an attempt at reconciliation between Jacob and Esau as well. Um, but, yes, these are very important, and I've, I've often been asked, well, do I have a whole host of brothers and sisters? I don't have a brother, and I do have an older sister. Um, but none of the relationships... And in fact, none of the events, none of the people, none of the circumstances in any of my books has anything to do with me, my family, my acquaintances, my friends, absolutely nothing. I want to make that very clear because when my mother's son came out, many people thought it was semi-autobiographical. Right. I wish I had lived. I wish I had led that life. And then when Jacobo came out, since it was in the 60s and I was in school in the 60s, they said, oh, that's your semi-autobiographical book. And I said, no, like my wife. I said, no, nothing, nothing in that book. Uh, the only time I was in New Mexico, my wife and I took a week vacation there 20 years ago. So mm-hmm. I know nothing about New Mexico. Uh, I, I, it's very clear to me that I don't want to write and even in my short stories, nothing to do with me personally. Very important. I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm sure people wonder, well, you know, how could he do this? So, you know, you mentioned that Bronx Cheer will be out um, next year, which I think is, is really exciting. Um, but you also mentioned that you're a, you're a tech guy and that you're involved on the other side of creative writing, for lack of a, of a different term. So how did a biotech guy like yourself end up writing literary fiction? So, you know, the short answer is that the, the clock was ticking. I'm in my 70s. And if I kept postponing this inkling that it was something that, that I should try, I'd be in the position, that, you know, at some time in the future, expressing my regrets at, you know, the, the what could have been. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, I have to admit, it was difficult. As I was so deep, deeply involved in my life sciences career. And my new one, my writing, can take up a disproportionate amount of time. That's not unexpected because I was climbing up a steep learning curve in, in the writing game. 
but I always did err on the side of giving priority to my business activities, which did result in periods of time which I did little writing or, or editing. And that's why my mother's son took three years to write. Was that had right? I been, had I been retired, I, I would have done a fast. Now, it actually didn't take three full years. It's not as if it's 365 days times three mm-hmm. to come up with, you know, a, a, you know over a thousand days of writing, but it was it took over a period of time. Although I did get more efficient and better uh, that uh, Jacobo's Rainbow took about a year and mm. that A Bronx Tale, uh, sorry, A Bronx Tale, that's a movie, A Bronx <laughs> Cheer um, took about six months. But, but wow. even though I made a, a Freudian slip and said movie, I, you, you, you were kind enough to, to mention that you thought that, you know, one section of Jacobo's Rainbow may lead to a movie. Uh, I, I, I don't think so. I think both my mother's son and Jacobo's Rainbow are a little too complex. Okay. However, I have been approached to start to think about um, a, a Bronx tale with someone who's read it, a professional who's read it, which is more linear and more straightforward and more kind of hard-driving um, uh, as as a potential movie, but mm-hmm. it's a very difficult game. Uh, short stories yes. are are different from novels, but I have to tell you that um, movies are five standard deviations away from novels. So sure. it's something I can't think about now. Well, and you know, you know, I don't know how far into your seventies you are. I'm in my seventies as well, and. There comes a time where, for me, and I and I struggle with this, and I don't know if you do. I'd be curious to know. Um, where just balancing the activities that I'm in, I, I, you know, between my my social life, which is sometimes takes aside, my my volunteer life with Rotary and the Chamber and the YMCA my you know just my life and you know i've been you've been writing a long time i've been doing a radio program for over six years and um there there does there's there has to be joy you know what is it there's joy in mudville there has to be joy in what you do because if it becomes a chore if it becomes oh god i have to do this again then we're at a stage in our life where it's like, I don't need to do this in order to pay my Department of Water and Power bill. I really can step away from this, and but I don't want to. Because what I find, David, and maybe this is, maybe this is where we have a similarity, is that my, my gas tank, my internal tank in my body fills up when I have conversations with people that have a passion for what it is they do, you do not sound disengaged. You do not sound like, oh, God, you know, you sound like, you know, like when, I, when your wife, I can just picture this, a uh, no. I can see her head like, uh, no, that isn't going to work. And I could even see a finger pointing like, uh-uh, that ain't working. You know, I, I don't know how long you've been married. Have you been married a long time? Uh, it'll be 53 years this uh, oh. uh, the end of this month. May I please say Mazel Tov to you? That's <laughs> you. wonderful. That's wonderful. Con- 
congratulations. And, you know, when you think about it, and maybe you have, I don't know, but when you think about it, you've been married. The um, relationship of a marriage is the longest relationship than any other relationship you know. In your 70-plus years, you've been married more than you haven't. And uh, I, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that that, you know, is your lifestyle and Father's Day and all of that perhaps was very special to you. And I love the part of the country that you live in. I'm very familiar with Dartmouth. I'm very familiar with the part that you live in because who doesn't want to go to New England in the fall, especially if you're from Los Angeles and you don't have those trees here. So I, I know I, I, I love that. And So let me ask you this in the, in the few moments remaining. With all that you do, how do you personally find balance in your life so that you do have the self-care and yet you can continue to write? What do you do, David? So the, it's a, the answer, Marsha, is really what I don't do. I okay. Don't, I, I don't play golf. I don't belong to a club. Uh, I don't do a lot of the social activities group social activities that other people do. I don't have a ski house in Vermont. <laughs> uh, I, I, have, I spend my time in, in business, in writing, and then in those other activities that are close to home that I thoroughly enjoy, and I do it with people who I respect and who I have fun with, even if they're serious uh, kinds of activities. So I don't have distractions on the outside. And what I've found is that a lot of people who say, quote, I don't have time for this or for that, it's really not true. Because you find out, and I'm not putting them down, I'm simply saying, Mm -hmm. well, they watch a lot of TV uh, or they they spend their time, uh, you know, sometimes wasting time. Uh, Perhaps it's because, the, the clock is ticking, although I have to say I think I was like this in my 30s and 40s as well. Um, <laughs> but I've, I've decided these are, these are blocks that I want to do of time and, sure. and devote energy to them, and I do that. And I'm very, very comfortable with that and happy with that. My one distraction is playing with my two dogs, large dogs who love to play, and I enjoy that. That's my one kind of non-official thing to do, and I have more fun doing that than you could imagine. Well, I think that's great. And so everybody defines self-care in their own way. One woman could say it's getting that manicure. Um, Somebody else could say it's petting my cat. Um, Somebody else could say taking their dog for a walk. Um, We all need to take some quiet time I have found yoga to be so helpful for my personality to be mindful, to take that deep breath, to just still myself because, frankly, that isn't always easy for me to do because there's always so much noise going on up there. Not only is there conversation going on in my brain, but there's always music. i got a jukebox always going on up there as well. Uh, I like photography, so I will just remove myself from this screen and get outside. I think we all have to find that way of doing it. Sounds to me like writing for you is a joy or you wouldn't be doing it. 
And I, I think that that's wonderful. I, I think that that probably is why your writing is so acclaimed and why you can be in business, as you mentioned, where you can write as you like. You can have your friends. And frankly, that sounds pretty complete to me, to be honest with you, David. I, I think that that makes sense. And I, I do want to once again remind people, because your website is very um, beneficial, that you can find David on his website. Remember to spell it correctly. It is David Hirschberg, and the Hirschberg is spelled H-I-R-S-H-B-E-R-G dot com. Now, as we heard at the top of the hour, oh, my God, I, I'm going to my hands up in the air. I am really interested to know how this goes when you meet your long-lost cousin, David Hirschberg, whose grandpa and you have, have the relationship connection because that is really cool. You must be – that must be very exciting for you, I would think. Uh, I am. I'm thrilled. And I know we don't have too much time, but I also found through writing – a yes. fourth cousin who's a woman who's 97 years old, <gasps> and wow. uh, and so uh, and she doesn't know uh, the, the other David. <laughs> she didn't know me or the other one. So it's been That's... it's been a wonderful process, and I I have to say I have I have no complaints in life at all, none. You know, you know why? Because what you and I both share, besides the opportunity to have this conversation. I guess, would be the word gratitude. I am, I do live a grateful life. Do I have, do I, am I where I thought I would have been 12 years ago? No. But it is what it is, which is what my husband would say, and it is what it is. And while we will not be celebrating a 50th anniversary, like like you guys are doing, or 53 in your case, I am still grateful for the life that I live. And I think that if we can all take that away as another takeaway from what we do, find what it is you're grateful for and acknowledge it. We're about to get out. We're about to be more social. This is, for some people, what we've been waiting for. For others, not so much. No judgment. I've learned that in yoga, starting with myself. So I just... I want to thank you, Dave, so much. Do, do, so my son's name is David. I have, a, I have a son from another mother whose name is David. So I just, I just got to ask you this last question. Do, does everybody call you David or does anybody call you Dave? Uh, David. Maybe they do. David. Yeah, just okay. David. Very Nothing good. That's, that's, all right. Well, David, I want to thank you for your time today. I want to thank you for spending this this Monday with me, the day after Father's Day. And um, this has been a joy, and I've, I've enjoyed every moment of it. One, one comment I'd like to, to make is that this yes, has sir. been the, by far the most enjoyable podcast or interview I've ever had oh. because the way you framed it as a conversation makes it so much better than a traditional interview. It's almost like we were two friends reconnecting after a period of time, having lunch together, and you're asking questions and making comments, and I'm interrupting you and say, wait, i got one more thing to say. It makes it incredibly easy and enjoyable oh. for a, a person in my position. So I, I want to thank you. 
that was a gift. And what my mother-in-law would say, bless her heart, she would say, when somebody gives you a gift, just say thank you. Thank you. That was a gift. My mother-in-law was did not ha- didn't she didn't waste her breath saying a whole bunch of words. My husband was very much like that. He was an engineer, you know. He he I did the talking. I was the mouthpiece. He was the rock. But that's what she would say. Just say thank you. And I don't want you to think for one moment that those kind words did not touch my heart very deeply. Now, I know I've gone on beyond the thank you, but I have to just say thank you. Thank you for your for your kindness. I hope people check out your website, check out your books. I will follow up with that, David, uh, and get this across all of our social, all of our, our, all of our, yours and mine, our social media, so that people can come back and listen to your story, because what's your story? is why this is a conversation. It's not an interview. So thank you for recognizing that. And with that, I will let you go on to your lovely day in Westchester. I will go on to my lovely day in Westchester. And everybody, thank you for following along and joining me, and I'll be back again next week. Until then, have a great afternoon. Bye for now. Oh.